This is Joya Italiano. This is Jeff Ekman. And welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies. Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics. That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool. Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go. Here we go. Hey, Jeff, you know what they call the Hunger Games in Japan? Battle Royale? With cheese. That's, oh, god damn. There's so much <laughs> happening in that. Whoa. A battle royale with cheese. I mean, uh, The Hunger Games does suck, and Battle Royale <laughs> is fucking awesome. Yeah, good the good kind of cheese. Yeah. The, like, cartoonish violence cheese. <laughs> yeah. I had heard about this movie, Battle Royale, for years. I had heard that I would love it, that it's so intense. Mm-hmm. And I had heard that, like, similar things about The Hunger Games. And when I went to see that movie, I was like, nobody has to, nobody's confronted with any hard truths here. Yes. Let's not, let, we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> Let's listen to the trailer. Let's take a listen to the trailer. So it's in Japanese. We can't. (laughs) We're not going to be able to really. Only a little bit of that trailer did we play for you for good reason. Right. Totally. But okay. So at least the title card when this movie starts is at the dawn of the millennium, the nation collapsed at 15% unemployment. 10 million were out of work. 800,000 students boycotted school. The adults lost confidence and fearing the youth eventually passed the Millennium Educational Reform Act, (laughs) a.k.a. the BR Act, a.k.a. Battle Royale. Battle Royale. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. Yeah. What are... Tell me some of your initial thoughts about this movie. Well, you know, it's about a group of kids being forced to kill each other. And I I think it's really, really well done. I loved this movie. Yeah. It's so intense. But really what I loved about it was how much it's about the how terrible adults are and how we're constantly like putting things on other people that like the the way the kids are portrayed is that like they're normal bad. Mm -hmm. They're not like terrible kids. They're they're normal kids. kids (laughs) And like, but the adults have become so angry at these kids for various reasons that they like are forcing this situation. Yeah. Well, and it's important to acknowledge that this was first of all, one of the top 10 highest grossing films in Japan. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons why it became so infamous is because members of the Japanese parliament tried to get the, the novel it's based on banned to no avail. And then later to get the film banned. But you know, when you ban things, sometimes people are like, I want to see that thing. Yeah. Don't keep it for me. Especially when it's this good. Uh, especially <laughs> when know? it's this good. But I mean, okay, so contrary to popular belief, it was never truly banned in the United States, but it just wasn't initially released. Mm-hmm. And I read some conflicting reasons for that. I read that the licensing fee was unusually high for this type of project. So like smaller independent distributors couldn't afford it. And then the big wigs that could didn't want to pay it. I did read American lawyers were telling the people in Japan, like, you'll get thrown in jail for this. Oh, interesting. Like, that makes sense. Because it, in the aftermath of Columbine and everything right. like that, there were screenings here and the screenings went really bad. Yeah, because so the the novel's 1999. That's the same mm-hmm. year that that Columbine happened. This was right. this movie came out what 2000? 2000. 2000. Mm-hmm. So right after, but yeah, exactly after Columbine happened, then dis- no distributor was willing to that pick was- it up. But okay, so again, like this this bunch of high school students, they go on this field trip. They wake up in an abandoned high school with these tracking collars on. Yeah, the the guy who plays the adult teacher in the movie is named Takeshi Kitano who is also known as Beat Takeshi. And we've talked before about the insane Japanese game shows and specifically him as the host of one of the biggest ones in the 80s called Takeshi's Castle. Right. Which I think aired here as most extreme elimination challenge, but like with 
oh, other right, right, dubbing right. to change the context of it. Yeah, I think I did read that when I was doing the Takeshi thing. Right. And in Battle Royale, his character's name, Kitano, which is his last name in real life, Takeshi Kitano. Mm-hmm. And he just seems like one of the most awesome people who ever lived. He was one of the, <laughs> the, the top three comedians in Japan uh-huh. for like many years. They were known as like the big three comedians. Oh, wow. And, and he, then to think that he ended up in this dark, morose role. Right. I, w- I was telling you before yeah. that like he wanted to become a more serious actor and the first time he appeared in a serious movie, he like snuck into the audience and when he appeared on screen was uh, really upset because the entire audience burst into laughter as soon as they saw him. Oh, And he yeah. was like, oh man. But then like continued to try to be a serious actor and I think his performance in right. this movie is amazing. Jim Carrey did it. I mean, yeah, gosh, yeah. he transferred over. <laughs> but anyway, so he goes on this big monologue because of course the kids are going nuts they're like why is this happening teacher you know and early on they show this montage of the kids running around and like someone slicing his leg and he's just kind of somber and now this is his payback yeah he like shows up to teach the class and the classroom's like fuck off teach we Mm -hmm. left like written on the chalkboard Mm -hmm. and then he like steps out into the hallway and some kid stabs him in the leg and he's like fuck the kids and yeah it's basically like no expression just washes it off and is like well and then battle royale happens Mm -hmm. But so he goes on this big monologue saying, this country is absolutely no good anymore. So the big wigs got together and passed this law, Battle Royale. So today's lesson is you kill each other off until there's only one left. He later says, you, you guys mock grownups. Go ahead and mock us, but don't you forget life is a game. So fight for survival and find out if you're worth it. So there's not like an explicit reason except for the fact that he's just like bitter. Like right. the kids were just having too much fun in life and mm-hmm. like ditching class. And then this is one thing I really like about the movie too, is it's not only very self-aware, but very much has a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. The the whole introduction to Battle Royale with that girl who's like, okay, guys, oh, you know, yeah, like yeah. it's so cartoonish. And you see how movies like The Hunger, Hunger Games took from that. Right. And the, just the kind of, I don't know, this weird the alternate the top, rea- reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, then the kids are given, some of them are given machine guns, some are given handguns and whatever. One and of then, them's given a pot lid. Right, like our our heroes in this they're given what was it like a there's a megaphone there's paper fan a saucepan lid binoculars and a bulletproof vest which is still somewhat helpful but bulletproof vest became very helpful yeah yeah surprisingly right i read that the director had said that he decided to direct it because the novel that it was adapted from reminded him of his time at as a 15 year old munitions factory worker during world war ii yep So at that time, his class was made to work in a munitions factory, and in July 1945, the factory came under artillery fire. The children couldn't escape, so they dived under each other for cover, Mm -hmm. and then the surviving members of the class had to dispose of the corpses. Right. So he realized that, like, the Japanese government was lying about World War II, and he developed this burning hatred for adults in general that he maintained for a long time afterwards. Well, okay, so I got into this whole dive comparing Battle Royale versus Hunger Games, because as we were already saying, Hunger Games is sort of this watered-down version of Battle Royale. You know, in the sense that Hunger Games is not actually rebellious. It only flirts with real violence and pain and, you know, kind of allows parents to have this, like, adolescence, am I right? Kids with no real anything. My takeaway when I saw it was, first of all, nobody was hungry. Yeah. And second of all, Katniss Everdeen, or whatever the fuck her name is, was never confronted with actually having to murder somebody. Right. I don't know. At the end, it was just like a family movie with yeah. a little bit, you know, in the same way that Harry Potter, it's like people die, but you're not right. really like, oh, It's oh. not pr- truly dark. Yeah. So I even read in this New Yorker article, in terms of violence, Battle Royale is to the Hunger Games as punk is to emo. <laughs> 
And I was like, yeah, you're right. Punk is really extreme and in your face. And emo's that like, I'm sad too, but this is how I'm going (laughs) about it. Quentin Tarantino said that Battle Royale is, is, you know, the one film since he started making movies that he wished he'd made. Yeah, okay. And actually cast that girl who stabbed the guy in the dick, the Chiaki Kuriyama as Gogo in Kill Bill, the girl with the mace or whatever. But anyway, getting to your point in terms of Kinji Fukasaku, he explained that, remember that inner title at the very end that says no matter how far run for all your worth run mm-hmm. he was explaining to an interview in the guardian that those were his words to the next generation of young people and then he went into that explanation about the fact that like yeah when i was a kid i was used to having to clean up bodies of my friends right. so he would he basically said we didn't blame each other but it made me understand the limits of friendship mm-hmm. you know like to us it seems like wow this gore and violence is really cartoonish but you right. think like this happened like the kamikaze pilots during world war ii were all mostly teenagers and right. also to to say that the director is also known for a film he made in 1973 called battles without honor and humanity which is based on the prison memoirs of an actual yakuza killer the japanese mafia yeah i read he was really interested in yakuza stuff yeah so i mean i think just knowing a little bit about him and knowing like he came from a world where that wasn't beyond the realm of possibility that that people would have to kill each other off and then i also found this really interesting analysis in terms of first of all the the novel that battle royale is based off of the game is a research project into the psychology of terror and it's dreamed up by a japan that conquered asia in the second world war so the analysis is saying that like even though they kind of scrub a lot of the World War II inspired alternate reality, the teacher Katano is sort of like this modern era Japanese glorification of war, sort mm. of the days of the samurai, which are still longed for by many far right conservatives in Japan. <laughs> so then I did this the side dive into samurai handbooks and shit, okay. or like those kind of codes <laughs> of honor, because I read this article, it's called this Japanese life. It's basically saying if the novel is about the victory of that regime, the film is about this false nostalgia for a world where it had won. I guess like there was this writer known as Yukio Mashima who saw that samurai values were disappearing as Japan was collapsing during the the Second World War, and he sought to restore the emperor's power and demanded the return of courtly elegance. This is known as Miyabi. It's the respect and honor of the samurai days. So to restore Miyabi meant that the emperor was still divine and therefore state power as divine power means dying for the nation is dying for God. So you can kind of understand that, you know, there are these far-right movements that might want to indoctrinate people into feeling like, I want to die for the state and therefore for God. So, Because this guy, Mishima, ended up committing ritual suicide after a failed coup attempt against the Japanese government in 1970 and is still a hero of the extreme right for even trying to do the coup or whatever. I don't... Have you ever looked into the samurai, the, the book of the samurai? Okay, so... Here's an excerpt from the Book of the Samurai. It says, The way of the samurai is death. In a 50-50 life or death crisis, simply settle it by choosing immediate death. There is nothing complicated about it. Just brace yourself and proceed. <laughs> that, that seems simple. Here's another excerpt. If always prepared to die, a samurai begins to think of himself as already dead. If he is diligent in serving his lord and perfects himself in the military arts, surely he will never come to shame. But if a samurai spends his days selfishly doing what he pleases, in a crisis he will bring dishonor. So it's like facing death like a coward, i.e. choosing to live. Live, mm-hmm. lacks honor. So Katano is this kind of embodiment of that, saying that, like you said, the kids didn't do anything wrong. They're just living their life and are enjoying life instead of being trained to die. Right. So, and again, it's not that crazy to imagine considering this happened 
to the director when mm-hmm. he was growing up and women were told to have more babies to give to the emperor's army and shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's totalitarianism, it's extremism. And and it's like a lack of, of respect for individual lives. Yes. It's yeah. like an understanding that there are so many lives that a couple lost here or there isn't that big of a deal. Yeah, certainly in the United States, it's like, I would die for my country. Like there's something right. about that honor of being willing to die for the state, even in questionable circumstances. But also it's not going to behoove you to really convince all of your soldiers that their lives are so valuable if you're asking them to then go in front of enemy, you know, combatant fire or whatever. It was just fascinating because he's clearly showing this lampooning of a world that could be if this Japanese imperialism or this like war machine continued. You know, what's nice is to think that he's sitting there at 70 years old being like, run, children, run for all you're worth, (laughs) which... I appreciate. So, yeah. I, I read that he was starting to make Battle Royale 2 and actually shot one scene before yes. he passed away from prostate cancer. Yeah. And I and haven't then his seen son, the sequel. his son finished it and dedicated it to him. And Battle his Royale son 2. actually wrote the screenplay of Battle Royale 1. Mm. So it was like this whole thing where like he and his son were clearly working together on this whole project. Yeah. I was saying 40 years in the director's chair. It's kind of like, <laughs> if you're going to die, you might as well die making an excellent making, production. Yeah. I mean. So we've talked about certain shows that walk the line between horrifying and hilarious, mostly these Japanese game shows. Right. And I found some more that walk that line, maybe a little bit more on the side of hilarious, but still coming right up to the line of horrifying. Mm -hmm. This first one I'm going to mention is actually really fucked up. (laughs) It's a Russian game show that aired in 1997 called The Intercept. You would sign up for a free car and wind up in this really fucked up situation. Oh no. The car you were just given has been reported stolen to the police. Oh God. You're goal is to now evade the police for 35 minutes while speeding through crowded streets and narrow tunnels and shit. What? Apparently they had to obey the traffic laws, but the car is equipped with a GPS that the cops have the info for. So if you win, you keep the car. If you lose, the police were actually allowed to beat the shit out of the participants. So apparently almost every show ended with the contestant on the ground being kicked by the police. What the fuck? What year was this from? 97. Jeez Louise. According to Time Magazine, Russian traffic cops created the show as propaganda because the car thief basically was always caught in the show. Right. But the show actually encouraged people to invent smart new ways to steal stuff. No way. Apparently the show was twice as popular as American Idol was at its absolute peak. Like it was the most popular show maybe ever. But I think it's clear why it was never like brought to America. Right. Oh man, like they need any help. And crime went up after the show went on the air and so they canceled it. I'm so perplexed by this. I mean, again, I'm not perplexed by the idea of people being interested in watching people be apprehended by the cops. Right, I mean, we had a right. show called Cops. We had a show literally called Cops. But the idea, cops. like, what is that deal that you work out? I mean, what are the what? Where is the producer's place in this? Like, hang on, we get to have them do this. But this Please also is like a state-run situation. Yeah, you know. Oh man, that is bizarro. Right. It is bizarro. So getting into some of the more fun-ish shows, there's a Spanish game show called The Great Game of the Grey Goose, (laughs) which doesn't have anything to do with the vodka, but actually has to do with real geese. Okay. The main thing, though, is that contestants land on certain squares, and then they have to perform different stunts. So, for example, a contestant has to find a key at the bottom of a mud pit while a female mud wrestler is doing everything she can to stop you. Okay. So it's kind of, you know, doing. there's a lot going on there. There's a lot going on. Another would lock the player in a small glass prison with sand and boa constrictors, and the player has to find the key and get out before the boa constrictors suffocate them. (laughs) 
okay, all right. And and then there's just a lot of other things that like involve a lot of like scantily clad women doing right. a lot of different stuff where it's like you got to answer questions and if you answer it wrong, we're going to wax your legs and like shit like that. So interesting. I mean, again, we talked about just the creativity involved, which we appreciate mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. you're having to create a bunch of different game shows throughout the year then right. I appreciate it but there's actually a show literally called Distraction which involves a lot of nudity and stuff like that while people try to answer difficult questions and in the American version there's a lot of like tickling feet or having something gross close to you or whatever but in other versions it's like paintballs are fired at you at close range or you're lying on a bed of spikes while a strong man crushed concrete blocks on your stomach with a sledgehammer no which I don't know how you survive that but Apparently, it's a thing. What? And then sometimes they'll blindfold people and then have them buzz in, but the buzzer that's under their hand is literally a cactus. <laughs> the pain factor. We right. just like, love watching people hurt themselves. And I read about other game shows where you have to recite a tongue twister or you get hit in the balls. Yeah. Usually, it's comedians who are trying to get launched to stardom by getting hit in the nuts on TV. Right. But like, it ranges from the painful to the weird and uncomfortable, like having to sit still while an old man gums your ear. Oh my God. I had the image just like slowly form itself. Oh God. The truth is I could list these challenges forever because like there's so many unique creative ones like you said. Yeah. We're a very creative species. Yeah, we are. But thinking more about like the commonality between all of these things, I think there's something to the idea of trying to think clearly during times of intense distraction. Right. And maybe it's because it's a fundamental part of life. Like We're distracted by so many meaningless things that are so easy to grab your attention, but we still have to navigate the most important things in life. Right, right. So the trivia questions are the things you're supposed to focus on, but the nature of life is to pull you off that path, and it's up to you to tune out the distractions. So I think there's something really primal that's on display here that, like, is really relatable. Right, yeah, there's the primal element and then also just raising the stakes, you know what I mean? From an entertainment value, you're like, even Jeopardy, there's double Jeopardy. Right, You know, it's like, we gotta make this a little bit more intense so okay not only are we going to test your trivia knowledge but also test if you can keep your cool or whatever right, do you remember right. that show boiling points on mtv is that the one because there have been a couple where it's like you got to keep your heart rate below a certain level while um, it's like trying to freak you the fuck out oh, that's funny no it's not i don't think there was any because it was you know people that they it was like candid camera style okay yeah and it was basically they were tracking until someone flipped out uh-huh, you know like uh-huh. Oh, they kept their cool. This person's, you know, our actor is really <laughs> testing their patience, but they've kept it. But, you know, by the time someone's like, fuck you, right. then they lose their cool. Right. So there's something about that. Like, we, we love testing. Mm-hmm. We love testing one another. Just getting back to the distraction show in particular, yeah. I think that, like, there's something that, like, it's relating to the life experience in a way that I never realized before. But yeah. it's like how do you focus on what's important when there are all these distractions around yeah, us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, people sign up to do these games, yeah. and we that was the biggest discussion we had about the Japanese game shows. Is right. It, the, the more disturbing they get, it's like, well, what's wrong with you? Right. But certainly even reading about cultural differences in terms of the backdrop of a time when people didn't value life in Japan as right, much. You know, right, right, yeah. Like, maybe there's some bleed over there. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> point. You. <laughs> <laughs> So at some point in the movie, there's the 
There's the hacker crew that's trying oh, to yeah. just hack the collars. Yeah, which they end up doing. Yeah, they, they actually end up doing. But there's a magazine that they read with bomb making instructions to try to get in there, I mm-hmm. believe. It's called Hara Hara Tokai, and it means the ticking clock. I'm sure I said that correctly. <laughs> is that like the anarchist cookbook for Japan? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because well, this is a real bomb making magazine published by an anti-Japanese government activist group called Higashi Ajia Hanichi Buso Sensen, or the East Asia Anti-Japanese Armed Front. Okay. It's usually classified as part of the Japanese New Left, but its ideology and methodology was different than other radical leftist groups. For example, its target was solely the Japanese state, which it viewed as inherently imperialist and militant, which encroached on weaker neighbors through actual invasion or through trade and commerce. So they wanted to destroy this apparatus of Japanese aggression, which would ultimately end with the destruction of Japan itself. So it's almost kind of nihilistic and yeah. anarchistic mm-hmm. in its in its. Mm-hmm vibe. Well, maybe you got to break it all down so that you can rebuild. Right. It seems like that's the best and most efficient way of <laughs> making change, right? So even the members themselves led double lives because they would work ordinary jobs during the day, but then build bombs at night. And the initial cell carried out its first bombings in 1971 and 1972 against sites associated with Japanese colonialism before it then extended to major corporations in 1974 and 1975. Okay. So the most notorious of the bombings was on August 30th, 1974, when members left a pair of homemade bombs at the entrance of the Mitsubishi Heavy Industries headquarters. Quick side dive, the original Mitsubishi family ended up buying up this area after the collapse of the feudal system when it was just an abandoned former barracks. Oh, man. And for a while, it was this joke that Mitsubishi had bought this useless land. But then over the decades, the district around it had developed into kind of the economic engine of Japan. Hmm. And at one point, the revenue from the dozens of corporations based in the district equated to over 20% of Japan's GDP. And then until the 50s, the government also housed many of its offices there before relocating. So so specifically in the 70s, Mitsubishi was also responsible for making parts of armaments used in Vietnam, which apparently now still selling armaments to be used by Israel and Gaza. So still shit going on. They're arms dealers. But okay, so this particular bombing in 1974, it went off during lunchtime and ripped through the lobby and eight people were killed and nearly 400 were wounded. And this is largely as a result of the glass that was blown out from Mm -hmm. windows and like falling onto people down below. But what's crazy is that wasn't the intended effect at all. Apparently, this particular bomb had way too many explosives that had been recycled from a botched attempt to bomb the emperor's train earlier in the month. So even a cell member called Mitsubishi to give them a warning, but there just wasn't enough time. Because it... They accidentally had way too much explosive? I think they kind of... I'm not sure exactly how you would have the foresight to give them a warning. Right. Or maybe because they didn't want... Like, they expected there to be collateral damage, but Mm. they didn't expect it to be this extreme. And maybe they just wanted to make the point against the corporation. So whether or not there was too many explosives, it sounds to me like maybe they just called to be like, hey, peeps, get away. We want to send a message. But there wasn't enough time, and there were way too many explosives. So they were like, fuck, we didn't mean to kill anybody. Holy shit. What are you... You set a bomb yeah, I mean, what the in a f- commercial in a public space. What, the what fuck did, you did you expect, expect to happen? Right. So then after that, this like wolf cell was soon joined by two others, and the three teams engaged in bombing campaigns for several months on the facilities of other major Japanese corporations, but these were smaller and better organized bombings. Nobody died and whatnot. So most of the cell members were then arrested on the same day in May 1975, and the leaders were sentenced to death, but executions have yet to be carried out. Yeah, in 2017, so May of 2017, one of the main bombers, Masashi Daioji, was sentenced to death in 1987 for murder, though 
at trial, he was arguing, that's not what we meant to do. Right, we didn't mean right, to kill anybody. Right. But during his time in prison, he campaigned for a retrial and published collections of his award-winning poetry. And then, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know what happens, he died of multiple myeloma at the age of 68 at Tokyo Detention House in 2017. But So he, he died before they could execute him. Yeah, yeah. It's Which is weird. Like, I know that executions get pushed back and appealed or whatever, but I'm like... I know it takes, like, decades sometimes. It's bizarre yeah. to think about. But what's nuts is his death also came just weeks after the release of Yukiko Akita, who was also a member of the front, but in a different cell. And Akita, along with Dio DG's wife, Ayako, they'd previously been released from prison extra-legally, along with several others, through a hijacking carried out by the Japanese Red Army in 1977. Whoa. And the wife is apparently still at large... Like, she's just out and about, and then Akita was captured in the 90s and returned to Japan to finish her sentence until 2017. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, this this Japanese front, they inspired some later copycat bombings, but clearly most people are like, don't do that. That's not, that's extreme. Right. And this, <laughs> it all kind of surrounds this one incident where they accidentally really did kill Killed people. Killed people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's what it's, you know, memorialized that for. kind of reminds me of, like, when I was talking about in the 12 Monkeys episode recently about, like, the whole backfiring of animal rights activism. Right. It's like, intentions can be good well but... anar- anarchy is not the answer yeah in this case it's just the extremism of it right yeah, like you yeah. can absolutely speak out against japanese imperialism i think it's actually like that part actually kind of impressed me because mm-hmm. it goes against this nationalistic tendency but you can't set bombs and expect people to well, not think thing. that you're misguided <laughs> it's like like isn't it in fight club or whatever where he bombs those buildings yeah. like the federal buildings but nobody's in them right is part of the thing and like yeah it's this whole idea of like we're gonna take down the structure but not the people and yeah. like you know it's you can't do anything that cleanly no when you're... especially <laughs> when there's a bunch of commercial enterprises that exactly. people are weaving about the fact the fact that they only killed eight people, I think, is, is remarkable. pretty insane. But yeah. yeah, don't just vote. Vote, <laughs> vote instead. <laughs> so we all know that the ancient gladiators in Rome fought to the death in a fucked up situation just for other people's entertainment. Yeah. And I got curious as to when and why we actually stopped this shit, and it turns out we know the exact date. What? Oh, I assumed it was like over the periods of time. You would think that. No, January first. The year 404. No way. No more gladiator beyond that date. Was that a law? Or? Well, the, okay, l- tell me. Let me, let me, first let's, let's, a few things about the gladiators. Mm-mm. Most of the early fighters, like in the BC era, were conquered people and slaves who had committed crimes. Oh, that they put, oh. That they forced to fight against each other. Jeez. But by the first century AD, the demographics of the fighters had started to change when the thrill of battle and the glory from the crowd was enticing enough for free men to actually volunteer. Right. Usually they were desperate men or ex-soldiers who knew how to fight. Sometimes they were knights or even senators who wanted to show off that they were real warriors. Okay. (laughs) They were not always fights to the death. Okay. And usually the referee, which, yes... They had refs. Wow. Would stop the fight as soon as somebody was seriously wounded. Now, whether or not that wound could be healed or if the person would slowly die of an infection is a different question. Mm -hmm. Historians think that it was more like one in five or one in ten battles that actually ended in death because the gladiators themselves were valuable and expensive to train. 
So the oh, okay. trainers didn't want their precious fighters to actually die, and they may have actually trained them to wound rather than kill. Right. Also, a lot of the gladiators knew each other, so they may have like tried to only wound their friend. Right. It's like you don't want to kill off Conor McGregor. Right. You just <laughs> you just him. want him to be hurt. Yeah, but he's he's way too much of a personality. You got to keep him. <laughs> exactly. They were also organized into classes and types, kind of like the modern boxing with featherweight and heavyweight and shit like that. Wow, okay. But they also took into consideration their experience level. Yeah. Because people wanted a good show. Yeah. Like, they didn't want just to... Someone get pummeled. Right. Anyway, at some point, all this fun comes to an end. <laughs> right. There was a saint named Telemachus who was a monk that came to Rome and was instantly horrified by the cruelty of the gladiator games. About 25 years earlier, Christianity had been made the official religion of Rome, but even with those changes, the gladiator games continued. Mm -hmm. And apparently, Telemachus ran into the middle of the Colosseum and tried to physically stop the gladiators from fighting. Wow. The crowd became so pissed off at him that they stoned him to death. To death. Why would one guy go in? Okay. He went, he was like, this is all, we gotta stop this. You guys are crazy. You guys are all crazy. And everybody was like, fuck you. And they stoned him to death. But the emperor, Honorius, thought that the murder of the monk was so fucked up that he banned all gladiator games from that day forward. And kind of, that was it. No way. There was no more games after, from that day on. Because they, because people just went cuckoo-cachoo and stoned the guy, and they well, were like, you can't have That's nice the thing. Things. It's like, it's amazing to me that the crowd hated this guy, but it was the hate that revealed how fucked up the whole situation really was and actually ended it. Yeah. So Telemachus may not have survived to see it, but he actually did nail it by revealing even the crowd's insanity. That's nuts. Now, accounts of this have varied over the years. Right. <laughs> and that seems to be the thing that most historians agree on. Yeah. But, for example, Ronald Reagan told a version of this story in 1984. Oh, sure. The way he told it, the entire crowd left in silence after one of the gladiators killed the monk. And that was the end of the games. So, no, no. Mm-hmm. You're cor- incorrect. But it seems like oftentimes the story is told as like the gladiators killed the monk and then the crowd thought it was disgusting they and they inward. left. And that's the version that no, many people have told. That's not how it goes. Mm-hmm. Like we know enough about human nature. What What's remarkable the more and more that we hear about gladiator times right. is how little we've changed in the fundamental right. like not only the the desire for the competition and the violent competition mm-hmm. but the crazy tribalism that results you know you see teams like teams you know alone. team fans go <laughs> crazy they're and crazy people yeah so i just i have a really hard time believing that people were like you know what I am wrong. They all walked out in silence? <laughs> no. Bullshit. <laughs> no way, Jose. It's a beautiful story, right? but It makes no. me wonder what kind of, or if there was backlash as a result of that. I mean, most times you can't just like make a law and have it be like, that's that. Or, you know, were there, were there any like black market gladiators? Oh, that's stuff? a good I mean, question. I mean, I, all it said was that like this decree came from the emperor and it stopped and like the Colosseum stopped doing it. And yeah. like, at least like officially, I'm, I'm yeah. sure like there's still dog fights in the world. Like there's th- underground fighting oh, yeah. rings. Like I'm sure I'm, they I'm, continued. I'm sure there was stuff like that, but, and this is just my ignorance of the overlap of like gladiator games versus the Olympics. And right. like how that, it's well, like it manifests in it in a new way. Cause like, what's the timeline there? Well, I think the Olympics is like ancient before, Greece. Right? Ancient and this Greece. is like Rome in its heyday yeah. and through its fall in so the I, 400s. I wonder if they maybe just kind of modified right. similar things. You know, that because it's like, well, clearly if, if 
today we have boxing matches, then like I hi- highly doubt that there was just right. this extended period of time where people were like, and no one right. will ever compete. Well, I'm sure people died in the Olympics, but like I don't think that was the purpose of it. It right. was more like how strong, how far can you throw that rock? Yeah. And this well, is like, like, can you smash somebody's head with a right. rock? How much time was between that and when, you know, then boxing started up again. Or right, yeah, I don't know. fucking mixed martial arts and whatnot. It's fascinating to me that the Olympics didn't start back up again until like 1900. Yeah. Like, that's way more recent than I would have thought. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, hell yeah. Well. <laughs> I'm glad we don't go see people fight to the death do anymore. Do not do as the Romans do. <laughs> do not do as the Romans do. Science. All right, so this movie has a lot to do with Corporal punishment yes, in school of sorts. Yes, in a very cartoonish, dystopian way. But I kind of wanted to look into this because it's fucking weird and it's a part <laughs> yeah. of our history and it's still a thing. But anyway, so corporal punishment, this means, you know, spanking and whooping, hitting whatever it is to... Hitting people with rulers. Yeah, you're specifically causing pain in order to teach a lesson of sorts. So it can be traced back to the Middle Ages, even until the 19th century, when it was handed out as a punishment for minor crimes and unlawful acts. You think about flogging, where a person's mm. whipped with a rod or a whip or whatever. (laughs) And this was common in the British Army and the Navy. It was abolished in 1874. But the last record of flogging in the British prison system was in 1962, which seems kind of recent for that but I guess not yeah yeah I guess I still imagine like in Britain like yeah. boarding schools and stuff like that I feel like through the 70s you yeah. probably caught a beating from a teacher I was kind of surprised how prevalent it is even like today but today. The, you know because of course my my old man always talks about like oh the the Catholic nuns would hit you with a ruler yeah, and that kind of stuff but that seems so long ago and mm-hmm. not not long ago enough wow. but so of course corporal punishment given to children by their parents at home is called domestic punishment many countries like Sweden have outlawed it in some countries it's just been restricted which mm-hmm. I'm fascinated by just the the lawmakers going at it because like in Canada they allow spanking by parents or legal guardians only and the child cannot be under two years old and they cannot be over 12 years old Mm -hmm. they also outlaw the use of belts paddles and whatever other implement right in the uk spanking is legal as long as it doesn't leave a mark on the body Hmm. and then scotland went to the point to make it illegal to use any kind of implements or whatever so spanking whipping slapping or smacking by parents is considered legal in most asian nations africa and the united states which i don't know i mean Clearly, we feel about corporate pun- punishment largely as a result of how we were raised or how we right. feel about it. Right. So I'm not interested in getting into like a huge philosophical debate about right. it. Well, I think, you know, it fundamentally, we're trying to define the line between punishment for a reason and abuse. Yeah. And because we don't want to allow abuse, but we do want to allow people to choose how they raise their kids. Exactly. I mean, and that's why it's a little bit weird to have these these hard lines of where right. you're going to draw that because it's we're talking about parents. Well, that's the thing about those ages. And I know I've read like the rule of thumb. That phrase comes from you weren't allowed to beat your wife with anything wider than your thumb. Ugh. But it didn't say anything about like the material that that implement was Bummer. made of. So that's like yeah. where that phrase comes from. Right. You know? It's like uh, this, a way this... of limiting it, but a fucked up way. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. That's crazy that that's where that comes from. Yeah. It's a bummer. But anyway, I wanted to look into specifically corporal punishment in schools, because that to me is a it's an easier line to draw. Like, right. fuck no. Yeah. Like, my impulse is absolutely 100%. No. Right. But the history of this is that in 1866, a major case was brought to trial after a teacher in the United States had struck a child 15 to 20 times with a whip. Whoa. I think this might have been in Massachusetts. I'm not sure. But the parents felt it was 
totally unnecessary and brutal. The case was closed at the time, but it made people start to speak out. Mm -hmm. You know, in 1868, a lot of parents in Beverly, Massachusetts wanted the schools to abolish it. But the school committee kept coming up with excuses like the, you know, the kids are going to get too rowdy without it. We've got to keep it. Massachusetts didn't end up abolishing it until like 70 years later. But luckily by 1877, it was abolished in New York schools because a lot of people were starting to realize like, I think this has an adverse effect on the child. Well, because also you are giving the teacher too much freedom. Way too much If you wind up with the Takeshi like this movie, (laughs) you know. He thinks he's helping out by being like, you die. Right. But like, that's the thing is like, they can just take out their anger on a kid. Yeah. And it's, you're less likely to do that when it's your own kid. I mean, there are obviously many instances of abuse, but it's like, that is a different thing than a teacher taking out their anger. Oh yeah, and especially in the, you know, industrialized west, the the control freakiness of parents of being like, oh, yeah. got to make sure my who handle kids with fucking kid gloves. It's like it seems outrageous to allow a teacher that kind of discretion, yeah. but what it was also crazy to read that apparently corporal punishment in the olden days was forbidden from being used on girls and colored schools. It was believed that girls have a different kind of mentality and flogging would scar their minds for life. Mm -hmm. But it was also believed that flogging and and corporal punishing a white boy, it made them manlier. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they didn't want to do that for the black folks. So it just was reserved. They didn't want to make them manlier? Right. Because, you know, this world is made for the white man. So like what? Yeah, it's all fucking ridiculous and insane. It's absolute nonsense. But it wasn't until the late 70s with the formation of anti-corporal punishment groups that Massachusetts actually abolished it, which is nuts. Even more nuts is to think that 19 states still allow children to be hit in public schools, sometimes to the point of bruising. To today? Today. Today. This includes like Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, unfortunately, my home state, Colorado. It's the most prevalent in Texas, the least prevalent in Wyoming of the states that allow it. Wow. And like, what does it look like? Is it wrapping on the knuckles with a, with a ruler? Is well, it? that's what's fucking crazy is because district and state regulations are totally different. Like, for example, the Florida statute says, it's not very clear, it says, corporal punishment means the moderate use of physical force or physical contact by a teacher or principal as may be necessary to maintain discipline or to enforce school rule. However, the term corporal punishment does not include the use of such reasonable force by a teacher or principal as may be necessary for self-protection or to protect other students from disruption students what the fuck does that mean you know it can be interpreted in many ways exactly so i mean i read also that african-american students and students with disabilities are disproportionately subjected to corporal punishment in school so it's the opposite of the brits right and they're they're hit for either severe infractions and or for like minor ones like being tardy so like even at holmes high school in bonifay florida students in woodshop class actually make the paddles used for corporal punishment they are that's just fucked up fucking ridiculous they're 16 inches long five inches wide and half an inch thick you know like that's bizarre if i was making those i would try to like make them hollow or something yeah i would try to like make them wrong i mean talk about dystopian future the idea you're like this is what i'm learning i'm creating my own Weapon, yeah, abuse implement. implement, Yeah. So again, you know, I'm not out here to be like, you're wrong if you want to spank your kid or like if you're defending it or whatever. But polls do show that support has been on a very slow decline for quite a while. Yeah. But like we were saying before, like the idea of not spanking your kid is a historically novel idea. I mean, 
think about it like families used to have a lot more kids those mm-hmm. kids were put to work on the farms right. later in factories but then later as infant mortality started to fall and and you know life expectancy started going up people started to think about childhood as being more than just a like well let me toughen you up it was like right. maybe we should nurture this fucking kid right i mean the first child labor laws didn't go on the books until the mid 1800s and then government sponsored child protective services in the u.s didn't really spread until the 60s and that so, was when we just went overseas for that <laughs> oh god i know we find ways around it we find ways yeah but man yeah i just it just seems first of all it seems like not that intuitive to to discern that like hmm, maybe we shouldn't embed our kids with this idea right, that violence right. solves problems or like right. the way to eradicate things from society that you don't like is through violence it right. seems like very obvious that that's not the way that you should teach your kid how to but also life. in the context of this movie there is kind of the thing of like don't take shit like that too seriously mm-hmm. sometimes you're hurt and it's gonna be okay right and sometimes right. people die and it, you're gonna go on with your life because that's the nature of life yeah and so there there is kind of like I see the argument for how it can be used effectively or to a positive, but it's so easy to have it be a negative and not strike that balance right. Right. That, you know, it it almost feels like at least when it comes to public situations like schools and stuff like that, we should just outright ban it. It can happen a lot for humanity when we are seeing a short-term solution that is going to eventually cause long-term... I mean, fucking global warming. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Jesus Christ. (laughs) There's so many examples of this where it's like we want the short-term solution because we know it will work right now Mm -hmm. and not really considering the long-term effects of it. And so it makes sense that corporal punishment was a thing for so long and it's starting now to become the thing of the past. Well, fuck, like, let's be clear. I mean, raising kids fucking blows. I mean, right. I understand. And they're pieces from, of shit. Yeah, I mean, they, kids can really bother you. I used they to, suck. And especially if the, if the parent is under like an insane amount of stress, like mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. understand it. I'm right. not trying to say like, what monster would even think about it? Like, right. it's just, you know, I get the whole spare the rod, spoil the child, but it's like, mm-hmm. dude, I've seen way too many episodes of Super Nanny, dude. Like, all you have to do is just get down on their level, look them eye to eye, give them some time out. So I was trying to find some historical examples of Lord of the Flies type situations. Oh, God. And this isn't really that fucked up. Like, this is heavily supervised and stuff like that. But in 1954, a bus full of 11-year-old boys were brought to their first summer camp. For a week, they explored, they swam, they hiked. But a couple of days later, a second group arrived, also believing that they had the park to themselves. Mm Mm-hmm. A social psychologist named Muzaffar Sharif and his team were disguised as camp counselors and watched each group bond to each other, name themselves, they were the Rattlers and the Eagles, Mm -hmm. stake territory and find their internal group dynamics. Mm -hmm. They actually did this experiment twice. The first time when they were trying to stoke confrontations between the two groups, the kids just didn't bite. Really? Like after losing at tug of war and being like egged on by the counselors, one team just admitted that the other was stronger. An issue with their clothes was chalked up to a laundry mistake that was no big deal. Every conflict that they tried to bring up kept fizzling. And the, quote, robustness of the boys' civilized values became a problem for the researchers who were paid a lot of money by Rockefeller to prove something that they had already thought. Like, one of the big criticisms of this guy, Sharif, is that he 
was of this era of experimentation where experiments were made to demonstrate an idea you already believed uh-huh, rather okay. than a way to actually explore something I've new. never heard of such things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they tried it again, and this time they were able to get the kids to start having confrontations, small at first, but then growing into like vandalism raids and other shit on each other's camps. Then, once the groups were defined as hating each other, the plan was to introduce a common problem that they would have to solve together. So they cut off the water supply for both groups, and the kids had to end up working together in order to get the water supply back up and running. It it happened over a couple of hours that the groups basically dissolved and all the kids were just one large group working together. Sharif called his experiment a success and published it, basically saying, like, kids will, by their nature, group up, but then in a circumstance they can get together, like, you know. People hailed it as an amazing experiment at the time, but over the years it's become clear that it was deeply manipulated and right. what do you really learn from all this? Right. Interestingly, this was all one year before Lord of the Flies was published. No way! Mm-hmm. Oh. Thinking about all of this and like the Stanford prison experiment, which yeah. we've talked about before, and stuff like that, it's clear that human beings are really complicated and yeah. when the circumstances are heavily manipulated, we can be heavily manipulated. Yes! Oh man, the whole time you were talking, I was sitting here being like, God, we talk a lot about human nature and mm-hmm. what that is. And a lot of times the cynical side of society really right. wants to be like, humans are inherently evil right. and they obviously want to just, you know, if put in a battle royale situation, they're all going to kill each other and blah, right. blah, blah. But like, even think about the kids in the movie. They did try to band together. They right. did. Some of them killed themselves because they couldn't handle the nonsense. Like, mm-hmm. Everybody is unique, but this assumption that humans are inherently evil, I think, is so wrong. It's just like you really have to consider the conditions Mm -hmm. that any animal would be in to lead them to be vicious and survivalist and whatnot. We adapt to circumstances. Right. We are capable of evil, but we're also capable of working together. Yeah. The the need that there was not a necessity for them to turn on each other. So why the fuck? Why would you turn on each other if if your chance of survival is actually higher Higher when it's together together. like that's the thing but then like that's where battle royale is trying to indicate a scenario where that's not even when that ends yeah like Mm -hmm. it's like we're gonna have to turn on each other because if there isn't one person surviving then we all die right so but like that's where it's like these circumstances that are all forced by other human beings and societies and stuff like that is what forces us to either fall into one category or the other. Yeah. You can't talk about you can't talk about nature without nurture, I don't think. You right. can't talk about what humans will do without acknowledging the context that they grow up, right. you know. Whenever we set out to show like a side of humanity, like you said, we just keep discovering that we're more complicated and more unpredictable than we ever thought. But also think about it, like most times, yeah, like kids can be fucking tactless sometimes and mm-hmm. just like point out that like just get to the core of your right. insecurity <laughs> right. yeah. because they have no filter. But <laughs> yeah. like Generally speaking, kids are good. Right. They They don't want to hurt each other. They don't want to hurt each other. They want to be happy. Mm. They're socialized to be dickheads. Right. And, (laughs) you know... Uh, fuck I that it kind of emphasizes how good this movie is because it really yeah. touches on all the things because it would be way too easy to suggest like well we just band together and then everything's fine it's right like, well what if you actually had to look into your best friend's eyes and be like either you and I are both gonna have our heads exploded mm-hmm. or I'm going to murder you right and let's stay stick with each other as long as we can but yeah, that's how, reality. how long can I trust you yeah, yeah. yeah. How did you feel? I mean, I guess if we're finishing with a kind of philosophical discussion, I know that we kind of discussed which of the kids we would be because they really touched on all the different endings. And I truthfully think that I probably would have jumped off that fucking cliff. 
Yeah, I think I I would have tried to find a safe place, but then with the with the whole way that they're like moving those zones so that you yeah. have to be moving all the time, I would I feel like I would have gotten killed very quickly. Yeah, me too. Or I would have eventually jumped. Yeah. Right. That's the thing. It's like the the notion of having again, I understand like the survival aspect, but like you have a choice. Right. You do truly have a choice. If you have no choice, then I can see everybody's capable of murdering somebody else. But like to me, that is not a choice that I, I ever think that I'd be able to make. Because look, if the whole point of do of murdering your friends is so that you can live, what mm-hmm. kind of life are you gonna right, have for right. the rest of your life? And like I've always thought that I would draft dodge if I had to <laughs> you know I, I would never Bones go birds. to war just kidding if I, you know uh, but like right it's, I'm saying that from a very comfortable position mm. you know I don't know for sure what nature may appear out of right. nowhere that I wasn't aware was in me very true if I was actually confronted with these things because I can sit here and watch the movie and be like this is what I would do totally but it's an easy thing to say well and especially considering it's easy for me to say that because you know the movie is so wacky and right, wild, right. but again, reading about the fact that the director lived in a world mm-hmm. where he was using his friends as a shield exactly. from allied bombs falling, you know, it's sort of like it really shakes me out of my very comfortable Western right. privileged right. perspective of being like, I'm really pontificating what it would be like <laughs> when there's people that are actively dealing with that right now. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I just, like you said, humans are complicated, <laughs> very complicated people. Did you have any favorite lines? I did. My favorite line was, thank you. At the end, I'm glad I found a true friend, which was between our two heroes. Because at the end, it was really, I think that's what it was about. You know, it's like you have all of these kids that are challenged with murdering each other. Mm -hmm. And then you really learn who your friends are in that that kind of Yeah, and they're bonded to each other in a way that like the... Nobody could ever be. It's like they would rather die together than mm-hmm. live separately. It's like that thing in Toy Story when all the toy in Toy Story three when all the oh toys choose to be together as they die. God, that, that, that still makes me cry. Fucking yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember being like, "This is when they all accepted their death, but they were it was okay because they were together." That yeah. was really, and that is like <laughs> you know. That's what Battle yeah. Royale is all about. Yeah, all Battle about. Royale and Toy Story 3 have it's so much in common. Woody and the gang just accepting death. <laughs> well, with that, please rate and review us on iTunes. Wait, you, do oh, you, I did you have a favorite line? I wound up not writing anything down, not for okay. any good reason. I loved that opening speech from Takeshi. Right, yeah. And I, I couldn't write it all down, but like, oh my God, the whole, like, just laying out the entire premise of this movie and it's raw. It's very it's, anime in yeah. a lot of ways, oh, yeah. which which is like to say that it's intense with its idea. It's a high concept idea, and it just like relentlessly introduces it and plays in that world. Once you said that, I was like, I could easily imagine these shots in yeah. anime. Like Especially it was with the, very dramatic. The hair and the clothes. The hair. Oh, yeah. Oh my god. They, I think they scoured. There were like 800 people that auditioned for these roles, and they got the I most actually, attractive Japanese people on the planet. I actually read that there were 6,000 people who oh. had done it, and then they narrowed that down to 800, oh. who, which they then narrowed down to 42. That's why they're all babes. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, okay, last thing I want to say is I am interested quite a bit in looking more into the Book of the Samurai. The, just like, yeah. not only the, because the death thing, of course, was already like, wow, you know, you have people that mm-hmm. are doing suicide bombings and stuff these days. So it's kind of like... I want to know the history of that kind of thinking, but also the Book of Samurai also covers topics like how to give advice, how to avoid Mm -hmm. yawning in public, how to love, because as a samurai, you must have a mistress, a wife, and a true love that you never reveal. 
That's hilarious. That's absurd. Man, the world of the samurai is really fascinating. Right. And then how to find freedom in choosing your own death. Mm-hmm. So fucking fascinating. It's definitely more complex than, you know, any image I have of yeah. the samurai, i.e. the last samurai starring... Right. Starring Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. I mean... <laughs> Uh, we probably won't do it on this show, but you should definitely see Seven Samurai if you haven't. Oh, I have not. The Kurosawa movie, it's oh, extraordinary. It, it right. total, you really got it. You know, it's one of those like film school classics, mm-hmm. but for great reasons. Right, right, right. You know. Right. <laughs> well. With that, we're going to be off next week for July 4th week, but we will be back the following week with the movie Identity. Identity. <laughs> So please rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at ohthatsathing.com and on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at It's a Joy of Me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And yeah, we'll see you here in two weeks doing Identity. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye.